0: It's the Real Old Reels podcast again, here with Robin and Lisa. We talked last week about a Christmas classic, White Christmas, starring one of Hollywood's sharpest comedians, Danny Kaye. What
1: have we planned for this week, Lisa? The pairing that we have for this week features Maureen O'Hara in both the Christmas flick Miracle on 34th Street and in The Quiet Man alongside John Wayne. This is our first movie starring Maureen O'Hara and the Duke,
0: as John Wayne was known to his friends. But Miracle on 34th Street has a few stars we've seen on this podcast before. Edmund Gwen, who plays Chris Kringle in an Oscar winning performance, was first mentioned on Real Old Reels for his appearance in monster movie Them. And the Susan character from Miracle on 34th Street was played by Natalie Wood. And she was in a Rebel Without a Cause episode, and the judge, played by Gene Lockhart, was in The Inspector General just from last week.
1: Yeah, it's like a reunion.
0: So let's dig into
1: Miracle on 34th Street and what has made it a tried-and-true Christmas classic. Miracle on 34th Street, just to sum it up, is one of my favorite Christmas movies, and one that you really shouldn't go your life without seeing. So, if you haven't seen it, stop everything and watch it this year. Go, question... go, go. <laughs> no! <laughs> <laughs> it does question the validity of Santa. So, it isn't one that we've watched yet, like, in my own family with my own kids. But um, but I didn't enjoy want, it a lot. Didn't want to spoil the fun yet. The film starts at Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And the character playing Santa Claus that in the parade is struggling with his whip. So Chris Kringle, he's, his actual character name is Chris Kringle, steps up to assist him and realizes that the Santa Claus is drunk and tells the Marine O'Hara character Doris about it. She is the parade director and she hires Chris Kringle on the spot to be the seasoned Santa Claus and replace the drunk one.
0: Could you be Santa Claus? Have you had any experience?
1: Oh, a little.
0: Oh, please, you've got to help me out.
1: Madam, I am not in the habit of substituting for spurious Santa Clauses. No. Oh, please. No, I... I... Oh, well, then. The children must not be disappointed. All right, I'll do it. Oh, good, thank you. Come right, right this way. The conflict comes when everyone realizes that Chris Kringle believes himself to be the true Santa Claus, And Doris and her daughter, Susan, are non-believers. And the storyline kind of centers around their faith in the Christmas spirit and in Santa Claus. Susan, the daughter, decides to test Chris by asking for things she knows he would never be able to give her, like a house in the country.
0: That's what I want for Christmas. You mean a
1: doll's house like this?
0: No, a real house. If you're really Santa Claus, you can get it for me. And if you
1: can't, you're only a nice man with a white beard, like Mother said. Now, wait a minute, Susie. Just because every child can't get his wish there doesn't mean there isn't a Santa Claus. That's
0: what I thought
1: you'd say. It's a pretty small act. But (laughs) eventually, Kris Kringle is committed to Bellevue Hospital. And it seems that all is lost until Doris's neighbor, a lawyer, represents him in court to prove that he is the real Santa Claus, which would make him not insane. I won't give away the ending, but it's a must-see for sure. One of the trivia tidbits people mention about this movie
0: is that it didn't, it, it almost didn't get made or have Maureen O'Hara in it because she had just gone home to Ireland, and they immediately called her back to get going on Miracle on 34th Street. But that is only a little part of the story. It leaves a lot of significant details of her story out, so allow me to elaborate. I read her, You I read may go her, on.
1: <laughs> I read
0: her autobiography and it's it's everything you could hope for in a Hollywood celebrity story. It's a, a dramatic rise to stardom and juicy inside details of the film industry and its key players. Her story is quite remarkable and although she worked hard and was beautiful and talented, her Hollywood career seemed to be written in the palm of her hand. Actually, That was a tongue-in-cheek theme of her autobiography, Tis Herself, which is the title. (laughs) Her life was a fulfillment of a gypsy prophecy from when she was just a little girl living in Ireland, actually.
1: Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
0: She was just five years old when an old Romani lady appeared on her doorstep and read Maureen's palm. She said she would leave Ireland and be world famous and be very, very rich. This prognostication proved surprisingly accurate, and Marine would more than once bungle an interview or audition or meeting, but her fate of fame moved forward against all odds. As a teenager, she had won several awards for her stage acting, and that put her on the radar of Charles Lofton. Actually, you would recognize him. He is in a movie that
1: We've seen and will probably bring out later.
0: Oh, and he's also the husband of
1: Elsa Lancaster. That's oh. that's where I recognize the name from. I'm like, who is Charles Hutton? Yes. Yeah. OK. He mentored her and connected Maureen
0: with her first contract with a studio based in Great Britain.
1: He took her with
0: him to film a couple projects in the U.S., but the year was 1939 and World War II had broken out across Europe. And what was supposed to be a short resume building stint in the States became an exile. Traveling into Ireland, even for citizens, was completely banned. At the same time, the U.S. had become more strict on immigration policies and Maureen had to leave, whether she could go home or not. So where wow. did she go from there? <laughs> <laughs> right. It was quite the impossible dilemma, but her mentor had already negotiated her contract to be bought. By a Hollywood studio. And she wasn't super excited about that. Because it meant she was stuck. But it also Mm -hmm. caused her. To become a star. Because of that. Because of her Hollywood contract. They were able to do some behind the scenes dealing. And pull some strings. And get her a work visa. For the time being. This is great for her career. But it's very distressing to her of course. Because she can't go home. She was an Irish lass through and through. And still a teenager. She had never planned to be away from her beloved family for so long. She had a very close relationship with her family. And to top Mm -hmm. it all off, studio contracts at the time were similar to indentured servitude. If you had a contract with a studio, they basically owned you and you had to act in whatever films they assigned. Some intentionally of very low quality and to refuse would mean serious repercussions for your career. And when they said jump, she said how high (laughs) sometimes literally off of buildings or whatever (laughs) (laughs) she did all her own stunts (laughs) that was the long way of explaining that when she finally was able to go to ireland after the war and between projects this was not merely a trip back home for her just willy-nilly but this was her reunion with her family after eight years She spent three days. Yeah, she spent three days with them before she was
1: summoned back to New York to read a new script, which was Miracle on 34th Street. Um, One thing that I loved learning about um, was how they shot the parade scenes at the beginning of the film. They had nine cameras and only one chance to do each take because they're filming an actual parade. So there's no stopping it and redoing it. And that's really hard work to pull off when you have a lot of moving pieces and what a huge stress situation. Like I can't imagine being the photographers in that situation. I wasn't able to find this out in particular, but I wondered if the Chris Kringle character, Edmund Gwyn, who was playing the Santa Claus, if he, if he played the Santa Claus like in the parade for the entirety of the parade or, or just for the few scenes that he was in. But I um, don't remember if that was written in her biography or not. I know that she said that it was so, so cold. And she and Edmund Gwynn were super jealous of Natalie Wood, who was like up in that little apartment, all warm, watching the parade. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And sometimes the cameras would break and or just not. They wouldn't be able to film because it was so cold. That was true for the final scene where they find the house it was freezing cold and they were having trouble with the cameras. And so the neighbor across the street, let them all come in and defrost a bit. And Aww. they were very, very sweet. And so Maureen O'Hara took them to like this fancy New York restaurant. And the lady was just so excited. She couldn't eat anything. She could only drink milk. <laughs> she was too excited <laughs> to eat. It was That's pretty funny. <laughs> but I really liked hearing that they were all really good friends. And like, it was such a positive work environment and Edmund Gwen was just the sweetest,
1: most real Santa Claus ever because he just exuded joy and Christmas spirit. I also found it interesting that they filmed this movie during the Christmas season, like we were saying, but thought it would get better reception if it was released in the warmer months because apparently the the um attendance of, of theaters was a lot higher in warmer months. So it was finally released in June. It did really well and was one of the most popular movies of the year, but I think it's just so weird that that I think it's just so weird to see a Christmas movie in June. Yeah, that was kind of bizarre.
0: They had no faith in this movie. But yeah, it was a, it was surprisingly very successful for the studio executives. Nice surprise. Believe yeah. it or not, there are actually several adaptations to Miracle on 34th Street. This movie, the 1947 one with Maureen O'Hare, is the original. It was adapted for a book afterwards, but there were stage productions and other made-for-TV versions, and culmin- all that culminating in the 1994 version written by John Hughes not long after his Home Alone success. To Maureen O'Hara's, Edmund Gwens, and Natalie Wood's credit, people absolutely love to hate on all the newer versions of this story, which is kind of funny. After reading some very vehement opinions and heated criticism, especially for the 90s version, I can understand some of the feelings. So, movie fans, if I'm describing you, I see you. You're safe now. But (laughs) we grew up with both the 1947 and 1994 versions, and I like both. Granted, the 90s upped the stakes somewhat comically or disturbingly, depending on what part you're talking about, and it added some Kenny G-backed montages, but they're both (laughs) filled with Christmas magic. And Mara Wilson is very cute and delivers a jaded child performance like no other
1: yeah, yeah, I know. Maybe it is an unpopular opinion, but I actually really love the 1994 version. They're both yeah. good, but Richard Attenborough, as Chris Kringle character, is so charming. And Mara Wilson, of course, is adorable. And the scene with the death girl just pulls at my heartstrings so much more than the Dutch girl in the first film, although both of those scenes are really great. The one with the deaf girl just, like, makes me bawl every, every time I yeah, watch it. it's so cute.
0: <laughs> and the Dutch girl, I think reading about, you know, uh, the context of and what was implied, that she is a war orphan from that was adopted and brought over after the war in the States, I think it makes it more poignant. And yeah. you don't get that when you're a child watching it in this right. decade.
1: <laughs> Yeah, that probably would have been um, really impactful for the audiences of the day, for sure.
0: Maureen O'Hara's <laughs> other film we're going to talk about, one of her most celebrated, is The Quiet Man. What is The Quiet Man about?
1: Um, so The Quiet Man is a new movie for me this week. And it was a real roller coaster of some stereotypical Irish tempers. Um, John Wayne plays Sean an Irish born American boxer who has vowed to retire from his boxing life and live in the country of his birth. When he returns to Ireland, he immediately gets his eyes set on a farm and his heart set on Mary-Kate. Unfortunately, although Mary-Kate returns the affections for him, her brother Will is determined to stand in the way because he doesn't want to relinquish Mary-Kate's dowry, an amount that is about $17,000 in today's terms. And he is also competing with Sean to buy buy the farm that Sean wants. The widow, who owns the farm, decides to take Sean's bid, which makes Will even more upset and stubborn. Mary-Kate is also mad that Will won't release her dowry and is angrier still at Sean for not fighting him. They do follow through with the marriage, but Mary-Kate won't let the dowry issue go, even though Sean doesn't care about it. She and Will are doing their best to provoke Sean into fighting Will but he's vowed not to fight again.
0: Hurry, now is a good time to ask him. Wait,
1: go on, go on. Ask him what? About my
0: money. He can't say that he hasn't got it with him now.
1: Can't you get it through your head that I didn't marry you for your fortune? I don't give a hang about the money.
0: But he does, and that's the whole point of it. Now will you go and ask him?
1: No, why shame ourselves?
0: Shame? The shame's on you, not on me. Oh, on me, too, if I've married a
1: coward. The tension boils to a head when Mary Kate sneaks off to the train to hopefully get Sean to do something, and something he does, though it's not what she probably expected. In the most uncomfortable part of this film, Sean drags Mary Kate five miles from the train station home, kicking her rump occasionally on the way, And finally thrusts her back at Will's feet and says, no dowry, no marriage. Will is surprised at this and finally relinquishes the dowry, which Sean immediately disposes of because he truly does not care about the money. Mary-Kate is won over, a fight ensues, and Will is won over because of the fight. Strangely, everyone is happy in the end.
0: The romance in this film happened so fast, I got whiplash. I was like, (laughs) wait, they're in love, they're getting married. Okay. (laughs) Um, I honestly, I think I got something different out of this movie than you did. Because yeah, I, I think I got the first impression similar to your first impression. But The Quiet Man is a comedy and it is very funny. And I have to admit that it took me a while of mulling it over to decide how I felt about it. If you're familiar with Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew, you're getting in the same neighborhood of vibes, but Maybe not the same cul de sac, because there are some key differences. <laughs> Suffice it to say, the beloved comical scene of like beloved because other people like it. Um <laughs> the beloved comical scene of Sean dragging Mary Kate for five miles, it did not age well. And yeah. my husband told my older boys, like, don't take notes on this for
1: <laughs> for your future. Girls actually don't
0: like this. <laughs> But don't dismiss it out of hand because I think you'll miss out on what the film is actually trying to say and kind of the humor and the joke behind it. Even though even though The Quiet Man was filmed five years after a miracle on 34th Street, it had actually been in the works for years, even before that. John Ford, the director of one of my favorite movies, by the way, we'll have to talk about that one some other time, became associated with Maureen O'Hare and they became friends because basically because she was Irish. Though John Ford was born in the U.S., he played up his Irish heritage throughout his life. Even his IMDb page says that he was a fluent Gaelic speaker. But Maureen O'Hara said he'd spout off nonsense just for show. And she, who did speak fluently, would go along with it like they were having a conversation. And he just thought that was so great that people thought Mm -hmm. he could
1: speak Gaelic.
0: (laughs) Though she's not cre- credited as a writer, she personally advised John Ford on the story and the script.
1: Yeah, and speaking of this story, it was adapted from a short story from the Saturday Evening Post. And if any of you listened to our earlier episode about Strangers on a Train, you might remember that Alfred Hitchcock lowballed the author for that story right, right to the film. But it was nothing compared to this. This story was bought for $10. Granted they oh. had to do a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, they had to do a lot of work to make it into a script, into a screenplay for a full-length movie and eventually they did pay slightly over $6,000 for it later after it was produced. But still, I could not believe that it was originally bought for $10. Yeah, uh, they got quite a deal.
0: Maple. <laughs> They both desperately wanted to do a film on location in Ireland. And this would be the first time that John Wayne and Maureen would play a married couple. Except the studio said they could only get it made if the cast and director churned out another Western first. So Rio Grande was their first on-screen marriage and John Wayne and Maureen would have several more marriages on screen. Wayne and O'Hara were really good friends, perhaps best friends for the rest of their lives. They weren't ever romantically involved, though. Wing called her a great guy, and he said, I've had many friends, and I prefer the company of men, except for Maureen O'Hara. Aw. That's cute. (laughs) This film was really important to O'Hara, and not just because it was about Ireland. With some exceptions, her first several years in Hollywood, she'd been cast in decorative roles where little acting was required, and her reviews would only remark on her beauty, which annoyed her. This wasn't her first role as a redheaded spitfire, but it definitely cemented that trademark for her. She became known as a feisty and tough actress that required taming by her male counterparts, at least momentarily. And she's got to be on some list somewhere for most spanks on screen. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that is <laughs> that's just conjecture. But I think it's a pretty good guess.
1: I hope it's a really short list. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This isn't far from her real personality though. She was a fighter and she stood her ground in some very unusual ways for show business. She blames her slow start to being cast in meaningful roles on her absence from the casting couch. Her beauty and talent kept her afloat in industry in the early years mixed with some luck, but she refused to abandon her morals instilled by her upbringing to get a job. One notable <laughs> example. One of her earliest films she worked on was directed by a guy named John Farrow and he immediately set to seducing O'Hara. First, attempting on the set, but then when she'd avoid him, he'd leave the set before O'Hara and show up at her house with dinners from famous restaurants. Her mother lived with her at the time and she would let him in and wait for, wait for Maureen while Maureen would drive around for hours and pre- periodically stop to call and check if, if he was still there. And after days of doing this, he eventually caught on and didn't appreciate the snub. So he began humiliating her on set. In one Hmm. scene, in one scene, she was supposed to hit her co-star, but couldn't seem to land it properly. And he stood up and stormed over to her barking directions on how to correctly hit him. And when he got close, she said, Oh, like this. And she decked him off his feet in front of the entire crew and he was <laughs> much better behaved the rest of the time. <laughs> so <laughs> satisfying. Yeah, good for her. <laughs> but let's get back to The Quiet Man. Oddly, the climactic scene where Mary-Kate is on the train and Sean grabs her and drags her back to her brother Will's home is probably, it is my favorite scene when I think about it, just because when you think the movie is going to go one way and you expect it to go that way, it does surprise you by, going, by doing the opposite. And let me be less vague. The whole conflict in The Quiet Man, as you said, is centered around Sean wanting to marry Mary-Kate Danaher, but can't without her brother's permission. Sean is American, so this strict adherence to traditional courting rules is a bit foreign and silly to him.
1: All well, this talk about her big fortune. It's not that important. As it is to her... It must be strange to you from America, but it's an old, old custom here. And believe me, it's a good custom. The fortune means more to her than just the money. Well, to me, it isn't. And worth fighting for. Is your wife's love worth fighting for?
0: But it isn't to marry Kate. Though she resents her lousy brother, it's very important to her. So their friends devise a way to make it happen within with the traditional courting they are married but when will the brother finds out that about the deception he holds back mary kate's dowry out of spite to sean and to be fair most people (laughs) watching the film will feel the same way they are in love so the money and possessions don't matter and shouldn't matter but to mary kate she doesn't feel married without her inheritance so She withholds her love and affection until he decides to man up and get get what's hers. I'll wear your ring. I'll cook. And I'll wash. And I'll keep the land. But that is all. Until I've got my dowry safe about me. I'm no married woman. I'm the servant I have always been. Without anything of my own.
1: That's ridiculous. You're my wife and fortune. What is this?
0: Haven't I been trying to tell you that until you have my dowry, you haven't got any bit of me, me, myself. Sean refuses because he's become a peaceful man and he loves Mary Kate with or without her stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The surprise is though, it's Sean that has to change and adapt to the culture of his new home. His peaceful pacifist outlook doesn't fly with Mary Kate and where they live and maybe that is stereotypical but it's what we're going with here and it's only (laughs) when sean stands his ground and proves his manliness that peace is restored with kicks in the rear end and fists flying fists flying at her brother not her so much and the cherry (laughs) on the cake is when mary kate opens the oven and has sean throw the money in it was the resolution I didn't expect or necessarily want, and it took me some consideration before I realized how perfect a resolution it was. This one's a thinker as well as a laugher, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a good one. But the dragging scene is even worse when you find out that Ford, their director, and Wayne decided to play a trick on Maureen O'Hara and kicked all the sheep dung in the field in the path that John Wayne would be dragging her face down in. She was covered in sheep poop all day long and was really mad, as you might imagine, but Ford wouldn't let her change her clothes, which is cruel, but she also needed to be in the same clothes for filming. Um, Ultimately, she found the humor in it and laughed, so she's a lot more easygoing than I would have been, for sure. Yeah, Ford and Wayne were sheep turds. As people <laughs> in that,
0: in that <laughs> moment. <laughs> so, you know, decide, you, you can decide to hate it, you can decide to like it. I, be a little bit open minded about the movie. Try to put yourself in that de- decade when this movie was loved. It's a beautiful movie visually, and people really enjoyed it. Of course, yeah. people have come to criticize it now. As for Miracle on 34th Street, Maureen O'Hara plays a much different character. It's such a sweet light film, and I have lots of favorites as far as the scenes go. Mrs. Shellhammer getting toasted and inviting Santa Claus, so stay with them. One of my mm-hmm. favorites, like, as a kid, especially. The Trial when Thomas Mara Jr. embarrasses attorney father. Love it. And one of the most heartwarming parts is when, like we talked about earlier, when the Dutch girl comes to Santa Claus in the store and he speaks Dutch back to her. Yeah. And in case you wanted to know what she says, she's telling Santa that she doesn't want anything for Christmas because she got adopted by her new mother and that is all she wanted. That's
1: so sweet. And I've always wondered what she said. But, yeah, that, that scene and the deaf girl scene from the newer version are my favorites, like I mentioned before. So, so sweet. And I love the parade scene, too, at the beginning. The drunk Santa is so funny. And my husband and I, quote, a man's got to do something to keep warm all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: I can see you guys doing that.
1: And my other favorite scene is when Chris Kringle bops Sawyer on the head. And I know it's not real Christian of me, but it's a little bit of Shreden, Shreden Freud, I guess. Pressing yourself off as a psychologist. You ought to be horsewhipped. Taking a normal, impressionable boy like Alfred and filling him up with complexes and phobias? I think I'm better equipped to judge that than you are. Just because the boy wants to be good and kind to children, you tell him he has a youth complex. Having the same delusion you couldn't possibly understand. The boy is definitely maladjusted, and I'm helping. Maladjusted? Him. You talk about maladjusted.
0: He deserved it. if you want to see more of maureen o'hara how green was my valley was a particularly celebrated one with john ford as well Uh, and the parent trap is a disney classic Mm -hmm. she did she did an early hitchcock film called jamaica inn it was one of her first and it was her first as maureen o'hara before she used her real name uh mcclintock stars the dynamic o'hara wayne duo once again And they have similar couple relations, a little fighting and spanking. Um, And I think (laughs) not in that way, though. (laughs) And I think I'll enjoy that one more, knowing they are absolute best buds because they don't play it off that way in the movie. I hope you get a chance to watch both Miracle on 34th Street and The Quiet Man. They're both fantastic. We could have said so much more about them. What's up for next week, Lisa?
1: So next (laughs) week, we're going to be doing the Christmas beloved movie. It's a wonderful life. And the other Jimmy Stewart movie, which actually does happen around Christmas time, too. Yeah, They're both Christmas movies. Yeah, that's fine, though. Um, The shop around the corner. Shop around the corner is like not as Christmassy.
0: If you feel so inclined, give us a nice rating, visit us on Instagram, tell your friends, feed your pets, hug your kids, eat your vegetables. We'll
1: see you (laughs) next week. Yep. We'll see you then.